Welcome to the frontier of the metaverse, where we learn from high quality entrepreneurs, artists, and change makers shaping the future of the metaverse. Here we discuss how to level up, how to get started, and how to get ahead of the opportunity. I'm your host, Howard Kingston. Today's guest is Dima Buterin. Dima is a tech entrepreneur and he's father to Vitalik Buterin, who is the creator of Ethereum, which is the second largest cryptocurrency, second only to Bitcoin. Now, something big is happening with Ethereum imminently, and it's called the Ethereum Merge. And it's going to impact everything from NFTs to cryptocurrencies to Web3 to the metaverse. So you need to know about it. Now, people have said that the Ethereum merge is the biggest event ever in crypto. And others have said the Ethereum merge, which is a move from a proof of work to a proof of stake system, is a little bit like trying to change the engine in an airplane while it's in flight. So the stakes are high. In this episode, we're going to talk about Ethereum and why it's so important. We're going to talk about the Ethereum merge and tips on what you should do around the Ethereum merge if you're holding Ethereum or NFTs. With that, let's get to the show. Dima, welcome to the show. Thank you, Howard. I think you've got a really interesting background and it connects a lot of dots while we'll be chatting about in this conversation. Would you mind just introducing where you're from, a little bit about your background? I was born and I grew up in the Soviet Union in the southern part of Russia, a place called Chechnya, and spent the first 17 years of my life there. Then I moved to Moscow to study computer science at the university and uh, spent my next 10 years in Moscow. And after university, had a couple of jobs and basically a software engineer and then co-founded my first business with a couple of friends. And then eventually, end of 1999, I moved to Canada, Toronto, and I've been living here in Toronto ever since for the last 23 years. So basically, lifetime computer science enthusiast, entrepreneur, father of three kids, including my son Vitalik, who is their founder of Ethereum blockchain. And these days, I describe myself as a kind of retired philosopher who loves uh, soap bubbles. <laughs> I love that. Lots to dive into there. I find it interesting. Something which obviously had a big impression on you was growing up in the Soviet Union, which is a very centralized state. There was a lot of propaganda and things like that. Could you tell me a little bit how you believe that influenced your journey? Living in this centralized environment and also seeing growing up like how many dysfunctions it had, and especially when I eventually was able to go outside of Russia and just like in the neighboring countries like, you know, Czechoslovakia and whatever, and just seeing how much better life was outside of the Soviet Union. When you grow in this environment, that's your expectation. That's kind of your normal, right? So you don't kind of realize how messed up is that. But eventually, it was very clear. So all of the aspects of the economy, they're free healthcare, they're centralized manufacturing of everything, they're centralized decision-making of everything. It's like looking back, like it all just didn't work at all. So 
you know, when I learned about, okay, here are some other ways to run economists and govern societies, democracy and whatnot. And obviously, they are not without their flaws, for sure. And they still were obviously quite functioning way better than the Soviet Union was. But then eventually, when I came across the concept of decentralized technologies, they made a lot of sense to me because, again, for me, they're much more aligned with nature because nature is not centralized and human body is not centralized. So that's kind of one aspect of that. But then also you mentioned propaganda, right? And that was fascinating because, yes, growing up, there was so much propaganda. I mean, from the kindergarten up, there was propaganda all the way. But it was interesting that probably by the time I was 12, 13, you could see that nobody really believes that, that, yeah, everybody is like, you know, paying lead service to that, but nobody is really buying that. And people are pretending to do that. And they all just trying to survive and pursue their own self-interest. And nobody is really buying this whole idea of communism and whatnot. And looking back, like, you know, growing up with that, then seeing the fall of the Soviet Union, then having access to much more information and viewpoints and perspective and all of that stuff was amazing. And then watching Russia in the last couple of decades kind of going backwards to the USSR times and the crazy propaganda really uh, also blows my mind. Like, you know, you can see that how strong some of their things are in the society and how hard it is to for big shifts to happen. And they seem to have happened, but then kind of they really didn't eventually. You know, you can really see some of the things that have unfolded in your life have come from having that influence early on. Do you remember the moment that you started learning about Web3 and, you know, probably wasn't, it actually definitely wasn't called Web3 back then. Yeah, I mean, the term itself, yeah, it's only a few years old, yeah. Yeah, but more decentralized technologies and blockchain. What was the moment that you started learning about that? I learned about Bitcoin, I'm guessing maybe in 2011, something like that, give or take a year. And it was like through my general curiosity, I've always been interested and curious about all kinds of scientific and technological innovations, reading magazines like New Scientist and Scientific American, listening to podcasts and all kinds of stuff. And eventually I came across a mention of Bitcoin and I was pretty busy building my business and nurturing my kids and building life here in Canada. But, you know, it was still quite interesting. And uh, I learned about that and I shared it with my son because, again, I could see that we had a lot of similar interests. He always had a very curious mind about scientific and technological aspects of life. So I was throwing up whatever I was finding, throwing it his way so that he would also kind of look into that. And so he kind of learned about Bitcoin. And as he started going deeper into that, and then he spent a couple of years with this organization called Bitcoin Magazine that still exists, uh, his interest and then his involvement in that, that drove my own further interest in that. So I'd say that probably around that 2012, 2013 is kind of when I started really going into that. And as Vitalik was uh, a writer and then eventually senior editor at Bitcoin Magazine, so I was reading a lot of their, well, pretty much every issue. Uh, it was, uh, I think, bi-monthly, maybe monthly magazine. It was actual print publication. So I was reading every issue. I still have them and uh, learning a lot, you know, about all of their developments in the space. I heard a story that Vitalik came to you 
I don't know if it was asking or telling that he was going to drop out of university. And as somebody who twice has dropped out of university, once out of choice, the first time was not out of choice. I remember telling my parents, I remember telling my mother, who was really excited and proud of me being in university, that I was no longer going to be in university. And I was really scared. How did you feel when Vitalik said to you that he was going to drop out of university? I was excited for him. You know, like I remember he came home that day and actually uh, my wife at the time and uh, my ex-wife, his stepmom was also at our place and he came and he basically spoke to all three of us and we all had a very similar reaction because we all supported him in that because it was obvious to all of us that he is a very smart, very interesting human being. And you know what, uh, formal education can be useful, but already by then, it was very clear to me that formal education is just like one of so many ways for humans to learn. And also as an entrepreneur, I have seen that their formal education is not necessarily the best tool set for, if you will, success and happiness, right? So basically what I told Vitalik is I said, yeah, cool. It's like, you stay in the university, you can finish it, you will get a nice, cushy job at Google, Microsoft, whatever. You will make good money, will be comfortable. If you drop out and you do stuff that you want to do, yeah, life, you probably will go through a bunch more challenges, but you will learn so much more. And that's pretty much how it's unfolded, right? Like his life was very uh, rich with uh, events and learnings and challenges and all kinds of stuff. I think that's a beautiful thing, that formal education is not the only way you can learn. No, no. It's awesome. Again, like I'm a huge believer in learning, right? But human beings, they learn in so many different ways. It's like just recently I had a conversation with my dad, and he was saying that he's concerned about my daughters, his granddaughters, spending so much time on like social media and watching you know stuff tv and whatnot i'm like but you know what like there's so much learning happening there as well this is how it is with every new generation they use different ways to learn about life and about the world and they interact with it in different ways through different technologies for me this is the reality how it is take us to the day where vitalik came to you with the idea for ethereum for the very first time I frankly don't remember the idea in some conversations. It might have popped up here and there, but I remember when he actually showed me the draft of his white paper about Ethereum. So it was the the fall, and now, because it was so long ago, I believe it was the fall of 2013, and he showed me the white paper, and I read it, and I was quite excited because... He's really good at explaining very complex things in a very simple way, right? I believe that this is very important too. And I think that in some ways I can do that for people in some other areas of human knowledge, if you will. And he's really good at that. So I loved his writings in Bitcoin magazine. So his white paper, again, even though I only had very superficial and still have pretty superficial knowledge of Bitcoin and blockchains and all of that stuff, I had enough background to understand the concept and the concept made total sense to me, right? And, you know, one analogy that I share with people is that it's like people who knew what's the progression of internet and World Wide Web is that first there was HTML. It was very cool. You could build the static web pages and then you had images and text and all kinds of stuff and you could click on them and go between pages. 
But eventually, when JavaScript was added to web pages, then the web really flourished. And now you can have interactive websites and that are indistinguishable from native uh, applications on your PC, right? So really, Ethereum was to Bitcoin what uh, JavaScript was to HTML. It's like, you know, HTML was a wonderful invention, but with the power of JavaScript, it became so much more powerful. And of course, it became much more complicated. And there are so many more risks, you know, with websites that can run, you know, code like JavaScript and some other. But it also opened up totally, absolutely new humongous opportunities for using those technologies. So we're starting to talk about the power of Ethereum here, which is such a topical conversation based on what's happening imminently. One thing when I'm speaking to people who are maybe new to cryptocurrencies is they're like, oh, Ethereum, I've heard of Bitcoin. Ethereum, why do I need Ethereum? And what you're just saying there is that it allows you more interactivity. It gives you extra functionality. If somebody said, like, why can't I just use Bitcoin? What would you say to them? People, what we always do, we always improve things, right? We invent stuff and stuff is awesome. You know, we invent a steam engine, but then we invent uh, an internal combustion engine and it's better and then an electrical engine. And it's not the last step, right? Things always get improved. So Bitcoin by itself was a wonderful invention. It was a technology that helped people to have what I would call decentralized money. Basically, Bitcoin, a decentralized ledger of transactions of all the records, here's their limited pool of money, who owns each part of that, and uh, then records all the transfers. So that's the Bitcoin in its core. And then, of course, people try to improve that, right? So Ethereum was not the first and not the last attempt to that. Like, if you count all their cryptocurrencies and blockchains that exist out there, they measure it in thousands, right? But again, all of that started from Bitcoin. And Ethereum was the first major breakthrough, which basically said, okay, if we take Bitcoin, but then we add the ability to run programming code on top of that. So that means that instead of simple transfers, you know, from account A to account B, we can add some logic, right? So programming code is a way to embed certain rules into what's happening and say, okay, when there is enough money, then you can do that, then this can happen. So the transfers then can start some a cascade of different actions and so on, right? And there are some other attempts to like, let's say, oh, Bitcoin is awesome for decentralized money. Well, let's now try to create special version of Bitcoin for real estate. Let's try to create a version of Bitcoin for stock markets and so on. But the idea of Ethereum was that, hey, what if instead of trying to create like all those multiple specialized versions of Bitcoin, what if we take Bitcoin and we add programming code and now people can create, you know, whatever they want with that code. And that's exactly the idea. And that's exactly what happened. So again, Bitcoin is still working. It's still a pretty awesome way for people to have decentralized money. But then Ethereum can be used for decentralized money. There are applications for real estate, for games, for art, for decentralized finance, for all kinds of other things because of its internal flexibility. And again, flexibility is not easy to achieve. There are lots of challenges that had to be solved, still have to be solved to enable all of that. But their capability of the same technology, but enabled with uh, arbitrary programming code instructions that can be added is uh, humongous. Amazing. Great explanation. So imminently, there's something really big happening. 
there is something called the Ethereum merge. If someone was listening to this and they've heard of the Ethereum merge, because at this point, you know, a lot of people have, but they're not that sure what the impact or why it's important. Why is the Ethereum merge so important? As I've mentioned, uh, Ethereum is, if we compare it to their granddaddy Bitcoin, is a much more ambitious undertaking. There are so many more possible use cases, capabilities, the ways it can be used in the society. Whenever you have a system that is more capable, that is more flexible, that system inevitably is much more complicated. There are many more risks. There are many more bottlenecks. There are many more potential problems. If you watch the progress of our regular computer software, then and you look how much more sophisticated it has become over the years, including aspects of security and interoperability and all kinds of stuff. So Ethereum, from its original concept, there was a big roadmap of all the things that were envisioned originally and then evolved over the years of how it can be further improved, made more secure, made more scalable, made cheaper, and, and so on, right? And one of the important aspects of this was in the heart of them, the blockchains, one of the things they have is basically, so it's a decentralized system and grossly oversimplifying, it means inside of the system, there is a little algorithm that allows participants, people involved in the system to vote what operations in the system and what transactions in the systems are correct. And, you know, there is like a technical aspect of that with all kinds of math and cryptography that transactions are verified and checked and whatnot. But then also because computers run the code and code is written by humans, then humans, people who want to cheat and whatever, then how do you make sure that you protect the system against the people who want to misbehave, right? A little side note on this, right? Again, like that's the beauty of the invention of Bitcoin because in the early years of information technology, a lot of the systems that we humans were designing, they were designed with their assumption that everybody will be just using those systems just for what they intended to use. And everybody will be well-intended. So it means that, you know, there will be some really smart, kind people running those centralized systems for us, and they will be always having our best interests at heart. But we've learned over the years that's not the case, you know. Yeah, some of those humans are awesome, and some of the humans, they make mistakes, some of them are corruptible, and so on and so on. And this means that the system has to work in the context of humans trying to basically to cheat on each other, right? That's the concept of blockchain. It's a decentralized system which is designed to operate correctly and honestly in the environment when you cannot guarantee that everybody is honest, right? And how do people do that? There is a concept of consensus, like the majority of participants in the system have to agree that, okay, this is the correct way to use this system, a consensus algorithm, they, they refer to it in blockchain. And their initial invention of uh, Bitcoin, their consensus algorithm for that is uh, called proof of work. And grossly oversimplifying, it's like people who process the transactions, uh, participate and provide their computing facilities to process the transactions. We call them miners, and they are paid for the work that they do. We uh, proportionally give them their chances to process those transactions and share the reward. And the way the systems uh, deal with possible cheaters is that it allocates you know, the chances of a particular miner participant in the system to process the transaction and get paid for that substantial amount of money is proportional to how much equipment they have or how much they have invested into the system, right? 
in proof of work, basically the way it works, you kind of have to constantly run your equipment and you have to solve those cryptographic puzzles to prove to the system that this is how many computers I have. Because everybody, you know, people involved in the system, they're all over the world. You cannot physically check them, right? So, and then people are smart. They can invent all kinds of ways to pretend that my computer, oh, it just connected from here and now it's from VPN from China or whatever it is, right? So proof of work requires you to constantly run your equipment involved in uh, supporting the system and processing the transaction. And famously, really, the people with the most amount of equipment wins. Yes, of course, because of the economies of scale, right? Yes. And the environmental argument against that is... Yeah, so that was kind of my very long-winded answer to what you asked about why is the merge is so big, right? So this original algorithm of Bitcoin, it was very ingenious. However, that was never envisioned by the inventor of Bitcoin that Bitcoin would have such a humongous success. And this algorithm at scale is very inefficient. So now we have thousands, millions of specialized computer chips being produced at a big cost to the environments, and they get obsolete within two or three years, and then they use humongous amounts of electricity to constantly do this, right? So when Ethereum was envisioned, it was already clear by then that this can become a problem in the future. So in the original white paper, definition of Ethereum, it was stated that we want to switch to a new different algorithm called proof of stake, because there were already some theoretical research and, you know, ideas how people can improve on that consensus algorithm to make it more efficient. And it was originally envisioned very ambitiously that, oh, maybe we'd be able to implement that within a year, within a couple of years. And that was not the case. It actually took from the launch of Ethereum, I think the actual physical launch of Ethereum network happened, if I'm not mistaken, in the summer of 2015. So now, seven years later, Ethereum is finally switching to proof of stake. And this is a big deal because it took a lot of research and thinking at dead ends and uh, trial and error and a lot of testing in the last year and a half. And finally, Ethereum will be able to change this part of its system, what we refer to a consensus algorithm, that mechanism that ensures that people cannot cheat on the system and it removes that need for people to constantly run the equipment and waste all of that energy. But instead, people are being kept honest by uh, putting some of their money into the escrow, what's called staking. So basically, now you put that money into the escrow, now you can verify the transactions and their system then allocates rewards and allocates the chances for you to process transactions and get those rewards according to the capital that you have put into the escrow. And if you try to cheat and then you will be found out and the system will basically take your money. So that's the concept of this. But again, to realize this seemingly simple concept took many years of research and trial and error and whatnot. So this is finally happening, should be happening around September 14th. It's a huge thing for many different reasons. Like one is a culmination of so many years and the work of so many passionate people in the Ethereum community. It will bring down their energy consumption of Ethereum network by a factor of a few hundred times, right? So basically, instead of wasting all that electricity, having all those humongous things now, basically anybody with their basic laptop, this internet connection can participate in the system and do that. So the system is wasting much less energy, also becoming much more censorship resistant because inevitably with proof of work, because of the economies of scale, mining gets concentrated with bigger and bigger players. And, you know, those bigger players, they have those huge mining facilities, they have big connections to electricity, 
And that means it's very easy for governments to identify them and try to control them. And that's been happening in China and some other places. So this is like a big thing for this decentralized technology to start using much less energy, becoming more decentralized. And also it changes some of their, you can think also of blockchains and cryptocurrencies as decentralized money. And, you know, even though Ethereum is much more than just decentralized money, that is one of its functions. And for decentralized money, the question is like, what is the monetary policy of this particular monetary instrument? So when Ethereum switches to proof of stake, it also no longer has to pay lots of money to those miners because, you know, they're making that huge investment into equipment, electricity. So you have to pay them. And now that people don't have to spend this much on, you know, processing the transactions, they call validators, the requirements for hardware electricity are hundreds of times lower. So you don't have to pay them that much. So this means that the system now no longer has to have higher inflation. And actually, the inflation and the Ethereum system is already lower net inflation is already lower than Bitcoin, but it's becoming significantly lower after that. So that's also another aspect of why it's a big deal. Because for people looking at Ethereum blockchain from a standpoint as a monetary system, then it's also becoming much less attractive because the level of issuance of new currency in the system is going down drastically. The reason I wanted to have you on really was... This has been referred to as one of the biggest things to have ever happened in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency and uh, really understanding that. Now, I was, you know, one of the things that's mentioned the most is the environmental impact and for right reason. It's interesting the point that you said about decentralizing the power. Censorship resistance, yeah. That was something I had not quite realized, and it makes complete sense. I remember hearing a few months ago, I think it was Kazakhstan had a big power outage, and it affected a big percentage of all the miners, of all the Bitcoin, and at the time, probably Ethereum miners, and it had a big impact into the whole system. Ethereum will be more resistant to those kind of things happening as well, which is super powerful. Yeah. The energy considerations are a big deal in the modern world, as we can see, like with what's happening with this whole energy uh, blackmail, you know, on part of Russia versus European Union and all of this kind of stuff. So I think it's very timely that this is finally happening for Ethereum. And Ethereum is their second biggest blockchain after Bitcoin, but also it's most used. So in terms of transactions and the usage, it's already the most used blockchain. So for that must use blockchain to reduce its energy efficiency and to improve its energy efficiency in such dramatic ways. It's a big deal for the whole ecosystem. One of the things when it comes to Ethereum, when it has been used in the past, there's a transaction cost when people use Ethereum. Let's say they're buying an NFT or something like that, and it's something which is called gas. In the past, one criticism of Ethereum has been that sometimes gas costs have been incredibly high. And there's been some instances, for example, when the Bored Ape Yacht Club land sale went on maybe about six months or so ago, I think it was about $100 million was wasted in gas fees. Will the merge, and this is something I've heard people say maybe is a misconception, will the merge help gas costs in the future? No, not at all. Again, like for a little side note, right? The reason for gas cost is it's an attempt to make sure that if you've heard about denial of service, so 
websites can be attacked by denial of service or distributed denial of service. There's more people way to do it. And for blockchains, basically, gas is a way to protect that. If there was no gas, then basically anybody can flood the system with uh, transactions that you don't cost anything. And then the system, because it has to be neutral, then all of the transactions are supposed to be equally important. And that means that your transaction might not get executed, even though like, you know, there's thousands of spam transactions, just people messing with the system, right? So the gas then creates the market for that. It's a demand and supply thing. Like, okay, if you want your transaction to get processed, then let's say then spammers want their transactions to be free or whatever costs 1,000%, but now you can pay 2,000% and then your transaction will prioritize above all the spammers. So that's the concept. This particular change, the merge, is not affecting that aspect of that because their throughput capacity of the blockchain is not changing. And Ethereum is already addressing that in a very different way. And again, there are many ways to scale. And the particular strategy that Ethereum has uh, chosen is uh, through so-called level two. So basically, additional layers of other systems working on top of Ethereum, they're actually gaining rapid acceptance. So some of the numbers I've come across recently, some of their uh, most popular level two, Optimism, Arbitrum, and some others, they now at the scale that they have about 20, 30% of the number of transactions that Ethereum processes which is a big deal, right? So we're not talking about single percentage points. So it means we're kind of very close to that. And if we look now at those systems, the whole idea, and you know, that's a separate conversation, but they work on top of Ethereum. They basically like compression engines. Instead of like processing all thousand transactions on Ethereum, those systems process that and then they compress the result and that result gets validated in Ethereum. What it means that all of their 1,000 transactions processed in that particular level too, then gets the security guaranteed by Ethereum, but at the cost of much less. And the recent numbers that I've seen, their transactions like to simply send money on those level twos, they cost like one cent or less than that. So scalability is already there. So the gas problem is being addressed in just in different way and through different path than uh, this particular upgrade. Thanks for clarifying that. That makes a lot of sense. So one way I've heard people describe the Ethereum merge changing from proof of work to proof of stake is it's a bit like changing a jet engine while it's in flight. All right. So I've heard some people say that. And let's say I'm sitting here and I'm holding some Ethereum. How will it impact me personally? I kind of get the environmental impact. That's cool, but I'm holding some ETH. What's it going to do to me? Will it impact my NFTs? Will it impact the Ethereum in my wallet? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah. To extend your analogy a little bit, right? Your, your metaphor about you know replacing the engine. The thing is like, so here's Ethereum, and it's been you know flying with a full load and interacting with the rest of the world, processing the transactions, whatnot. The thing is the proof of stake. There is another empty jet that's now been flying alongside the main jet now for a year and a half, right? So that's been launched in December 2020, I guess. Uh, so it's not like, you know, oh, we're changing the engine. Here's a new engine. Let's start it. No, it's more like... <laughs> turn it on. Let's just try turning it on and hopefully... Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. No, it's more like they've been flying side by side for a year and a half and the actual process of 
transferring the load from the old engine to the new jet with the new engine has been simulated many times, many like dozens of times, right? Simulated, oh, we found the problem. That's a far more comforting analogy. Yes. So that's been going on for the last year and a half since that second jet of proof of stake has been launched. The proof of stake blockchain has been operating now since that December 2020, right? The change has been uh, simulated. It doesn't mean their problems will not happen. Some small hiccups and issues might occur. I've been all of my life working with uh, technological systems that problems happen. We make mistakes and whatnot. I trust the Ethereum community. First of all, the enormous amount of testing that's gone into this in preparation. I feel very good about their chances that nothing will happen at all. And if anything happens, that will be quickly addressed. So from a perspective of our regular user who is just like, you know, keeping got some with ETH and uh, maybe NFTs or whatever, you don't have to do anything and it should not affect you at all. So that's really the gist of it, right? And I'm sure there will be tons of scams telling you like, oh, there is this big airdrop and you have to do this immediately, but don't do anything. This is the safest way to approach this is like, stay cool. Avoid maybe using the system on the day of change and interact with exchanges because most of the systems will probably still have some short offline time. And just in case, kind of, you don't want to, your money gets stuck in one of those processes. But uh, basically, you should not be affected at all. So that's actually a really interesting one that you said there. And I think I want to highlight it to all listeners that the scammers out there these days are pretty advanced and somehow they're going to use this as an angle. They already are. There are so many of this. Yeah. Yeah. Ethereum with a weird spelling dot org tells you to click this and verify your proof of stake. Yeah. So don't do anything like that. Claim your airdrop. Yeah. Okay. So that's a really good one to just almost be fully aware of that. And then I have heard some people say that they're not going to transact for a day or two around the merge. That's a good, safe approach to this. Yeah. I've heard some people talk about forks happening. Is that something an average user needs to be aware of? It's useful to be aware of that, right? Because basically, now that Ethereum is switching to proof of stake, all of the people with all of those uh, huge, you know, hangers full of mining equipment and waste and electricity, they no longer useful. That has been known that this day would come. And those people have been really well rewarded for what they've done. But still, that's a human nature. You know, I've made this big investment. And who cares if I got three times the return? I want to keep making money from that, right? So some of the miners I'm hearing that they want to basically maintain another copy of Ethereum blockchain where they will keep using the old algorithm because with the old algorithm, they can keep using their mining equipment and keep generating money from that. So that probably will happen. So we'll be another copy of Ethereum after this. I'm very doubtful of success of that fork. And again, I've seen another big fork with Ethereum happened in 2016. It's called DAO fork after a major hacking situation in the system. At the time when it happened, about 15% of miners ended up supporting that copy called Ethereum Classic. So the ratio of Ethereum to that fork was 1 to 6, and currently Ethereum Classic to Ethereum is 1 to 40. And I think that for this new fork, probably there will be for a very short while, I don't know, like a few days, there will be uh, some activity on that or blockchain. But because 
the majority of the community of Ethereum outside of a number of those miners, they've been focused on this transition for a long time and also for a bunch of other reasons. I don't think that there's much chances of success for that fork, for that copy of Ethereum. There might be an opportunity for current holders of Ethereum when that happens because they basically, the way forks work is that if you have 100 Ethereum, then after this, you will have 100 Ethereum and also 100 of Ethereum for power, whatever. There is potential that you can make some money by selling that 100 copy Ethereum coins quickly after that and then whatever, going into fiat or buying more Ethereum, whatever it is. There is an opportunity to do that. But again, this is something you definitely want to research, do very carefully and not rush into this. Anyone who's not familiar with forks, should the fork happen, which it is, you know, some people, including yourself, would say that it probably may, if I'm holding, let's just call it 10 Ethereum, that when Ethereum moves to proof of stake, naturally my 10 Ethereum will be on the Ethereum proof of stake. But if there's a fork, that 10 Ethereum will also be brought across to the fork. So it may essentially, in effect, create a double version of my Ethereum I'm holding on the fork chain, if it's called, say, Ethereum POW or whatever it's called. Yeah. And one little but important detail, it depends also on how exactly you own your Ethereum currently. Either it's in your own wallet, is it in a smart contract wallet, is it on an exchange, and so on. Yes. And it would need to be in a ledger wallet or a hard wallet, wouldn't it? Or would it? Basically, any kind of wallet where you have your own private keys is the safest way for you then to claim the ownership of that because your private keys are basically passwords to your blockchain account. And I think it's quite likely that there will be some kind of Ethereum fork happening. This means that they will be running a copy of Ethereum and that copy will have the same ledger of who owns what and you know the private keys, even though, again, the miners can decide to make some changes to that. Like, for example, there's some talk that they will probably confiscate the money owned by Ethereum Foundation in that uh, fork, but whatever, they will not touch money owned by retail investors, you know, people owning. So it means that now your passwords that work on Ethereum, you know, your private keys, and I call them, just to simplify, let's call them passwords for Ethereum blockchain accounts, will also be able to use them on that fork to uh, control the coins that you now own on that copy of Ethereum. And then you can do whatever you want to do with them. Got it. Tima, any thoughts on, so I'm holding an NFT, which is on the Ethereum blockchain. Will that also be forked? Yes, because again, one of the metaphors that I use when I explain blockchains is blockchains are like uh, systems of notarizing transactions. So you send your transaction, the system checks that and says, yes, here is a stamp of approval. The transaction is correct. And now it kind of goes into that, right? So when you get an NFT, what does it really mean? It means that the artist created this piece of art, and here's the image, and they claimed their authorship of that, and the system notarized the ownership of that. And when they sold it to you, basically now blockchain has a record that this NFT now belongs to you. That's a record of that transaction. The actual image, anybody can get that actual image, just like, you know, there's copyrights for a movie, for a piece of music or whatever, anybody can potentially create a copy of that, right? And the same thing is here. So that forked blockchain will be, again, just a copy of those notarization records. It's not like a new 
NFT is created, just like now there are two notarized documents saying that this NFT was created by this guy and now belongs to this guy. So NFTs as such, they're not really duplicated in any way. Okay, that makes sense. So what I'm hearing is the NFT may be duplicated, but not to freak out because the original one will still be on the main Ethereum blockchain. Cool. That makes sense. What are some of the most common misconceptions that you're hearing about what might happen in the merge? I'll just give you one example. Someone shared with me today, actually, someone on Twitter was suggesting that everyone should unplug their ledger and log out of MetaMask during the merge. And for me, it sounded like, you know, I don't know (laughs) if you were ever told when you were growing up, when there was a lightning storm, you had to plug out your television. It sounded a little bit like that. Well, you know, like those messages that people sometimes post on Facebook in capital letters, I hereby claim my capital, my ownership of intellectual property and bullshit like that. There's all kinds of rumors and uh, fears and uh, scams going around. But again, like for most users, it should be a totally uneventful thing. Just purely speculatively, do you have any thoughts on what it will do to the Ethereum price? Is it already kind of priced in? Assuming things go fairly well, any thoughts on that? I mean, the honest answer is, okay, I have no fucking clue. Yeah, (laughs) of course. Because it's really an interaction of 7 billion human beings with all of the fears and desires. Personally, I don't think it's quite priced in because... Currently, there are lots of fears and rumors, and especially for people who really think that Bitcoin is the one and only blockchain cryptocurrency that should exist. And there are all kinds of rumors that, oh, this will be the death of Ethereum, this will be bad, and this will be risky, and blah, blah, blah. As a person who's been kind of observing all the work and progress of Ethereum community and that over seven years, yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, there are some risks, but man, how many amazing humans worked on that for so long. So I feel pretty confident about this. And it is a big deal for me because it's such a big change for the blockchain to become hundreds of times more efficient. Because again, blockchains are amazing inventions, but some people had big concerns about that when they look at the energy consumption of that and say, oh, you know, one transaction, then there is equivalent of, I don't know, like a car drive to another city. Like, what the hell is that? It doesn't seem very efficient, right? Blockchains, by their decentralized nature, they kind of had to sacrifice efficiency for the sake of the systems being honest in this decentralized environment, right? So this is a big deal. The system is becoming so much more energy efficient. And then, as I mentioned, their inflation, you know, their inflation going down. So it's definitely a big deal. We've talked a little bit about Ethereum and cryptocurrencies and the merge. NFTs have blown up in the last year or so, as well as this thing called the metaverse. What's your thoughts? Is there any NFT projects you're excited about or do you enjoy collecting nfts i kind of stayed away from that uh, for quite a while because they couldn't quite get it and then eventually i jumped in uh, and collected quite a few because you know what some of them are just they just amazing pieces of art and as i kind of done that i realized that oh yeah it is really a new like we're still the same humans and we have all these new fancy technologies, but then the human drives of like, I want to be unique and different and special. And now instead of me showing off my 
fancy jacket from Hugo Boss or whatever on my fancy car, I can show off this fancy piece of digital art or my PFP avatar and so on. So I think that this technology is here to stay. And there is a enormous potential now because of, uh, you mentioned metaverse, right? And it's really about connecting all those digital islands, like, you know, all these games and different blockchains. And thanks to the blockchain technology, now there is a way for us to actually issue a piece of art or whatever, some kind of object in, in one environment, but then transfer their ownership security into another environment and maintain that to maintain the digital scarcity of that object, uh, whether it's piece of art or something functional in that environment. So I think that the potential of that is uh, humongous because, again, in our world, we have money and money is there are fungible objects, right? But most of the stuff we have, like our houses, our whatever, our clothing, our objects, they are non-fungible objects, meaning that they are not easily replaceable by another object like that. So I think that the potential is there. We are very early in this. So I've come across all kinds of projects and I've seen many of them just being flashed in the pan, ramping up and then disappearing. I'd love to know, do you remember any NFT projects you hold or? Yeah, I have a whole bunch of, like I played with a whole bunch of different things. Like, you know, one of them I love is Evil Teddy Bear. I couldn't stop mentioning them. I minted like more than a hundred of those fun. The Evil Teddy Bear. I'll need to look that one up. Evil Teddy Bear. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But I played with like a bunch of them, you know, Budget Penguins, Lazy Lions, and, you know, uh, I've had some Mooncats and a few others. And it's like, they're a lot of fun. Some classics in there. Some absolute classics. I never got into apes because they just seemed so expensive. And, you know, I never got into their CryptoPunks because, again, I was kind of too late in my own adoption of NFTs as such. Got it. That makes sense. If there was someone that wanted to level up their knowledge when it comes to anything, whether it be Web3, Metaverse, cryptocurrencies, are there any favorite podcasts that you have or maybe books? And we, of course, we can mention a book coming out soon, but are there any resources that you find you like going back to that are really good? I'm a big fan of Bankless. You know, so I always recommend they have this newsletter and a podcast and they have lots. And, you know, they're not the only one, but they're one of the best that I personally recommended to many people and keep recommending them. I know that they are passionate about what they do. And also I kind of feel that they have the interest of people at heart, if you will, because a lot of materials I come across, they're all about get rich quick. And that's fine. You know, we all want to be rich and and loved and whatnot, but uh, it's not very sustainable in the most cases the bankless podcast i'll link that up in the show notes are there any books that you've read that you find recommending to people that want to explore the space or for sure i think that it's important to get the background and actually i'll give you the names and links offline because i kind of have to look them up you know laura sheen has an awesome book and uh, there are a couple other books that right now i cannot remember the exact titles of titles of them but you know they can provide really good background and history into this. And I think it's useful to read them, not so much for all their technical details and foundations, because technology evolves quickly, but for understanding people, because end of the day, all of this stuff, it's all based on people. And, you know, Ethereum community 
was started by Vitalik and then with all of these amazing humans that collaborated with him and now Ethereum community is so much more than Vitalik, you know, uh, tens of thousands of this amazing humans. So kind of understanding the history, understanding the humans behind this and kind of looking at their journey, their motivations and so on, I think it's really important aspect of this, right? And kind of when you look at this at the longer term and you can see, oh yeah, look at this guy. Yeah, this project might seem exciting short term and it's like numbers going up okay but who are the people behind that what are their motives like what do they want to do when you have a better idea about that then you actually have a better idea about the prospects of this particular project longer term i must ask Seema, have you read uh, vitalik's book he has a book coming out in a few weeks i believe i have not and I understand that this book is a collection of his essays on proof of stake and i read most if not all of them I hadn't realized it was a collection of essays. You know, I thought he was a pretty busy guy and sitting down and writing a book at the same time. I was like, where's this guy getting the the time? But that makes a lot of sense. I look forward to reading that. I'd love to ask every guest that comes on about the Web3 and the cryptocurrency space is incredibly fast paced. It's always on. You seem a very chilled guy. How do you like to balance your mental health? Is there any practices or anything that has worked well for you? This can be a whole separate big conversation because there are many things that I have explored from uh, spent quite a few years doing lots of meditation to therapy to all kinds of awesome books and psychedelics and whatnot. My personal conclusion is that there is no balance. Life is so rich and full of all these things and it's really our internal story that, oh, I should not be feeling that, or I should not be scared. Well, you know what? Whatever you're feeling right now, that's the truth. That's what you're feeling. Right now, you might feel excited. Later on, you might feel very scared or in despair or with a lot of fear because like a nuclear war might start. And it's a possibility, but this is life. Life has everything. So if you will, deep acceptance of their unstoppable and ever-changing nature of life and not as a mental decision but as a recognition of this is how life already is that's the answer if you will that became obvious to me that it's not something that i have to do or have to train myself you know what like whatever i do some days there will be pain and there will be this sadness and some days will be full of love and this and then it will keep changing. So that's life. I think a lot of people, when they think of mental health, they think, I shouldn't feel bad. And I think it's just part of life. That I shouldn't, that's the root of the suffering, right? Right now, what I feel is exactly what I should feel. And it does mean that it will not change. And it does mean that there is no action. Like, you know, I had a tooth pain recently, pretty severe, so I didn't want to take uh, painkillers, but eventually I did, and then eventually I went to the dentist, and I didn't want to, and they fixed that, and like we do what we can with the things that happen, and uh, sometimes there's still this deep emotion of pain and some other stuff, and that's it, right there. When I was researching, I saw that you've done some medicine before in likes of ayahuasca and things like that. I'm currently very much exploring that space. I've been doing some experimenting with microdosing and things like that, but I've been really highly curious about the space of ayahuasca. 
Would you feel comfortable talking about how it benefited you? I'd just be super curious. Because I have a very curious mind. There are many things I explored throughout my life, and uh, especially in the last decade or a bit more, I went beyond the technology. But what is the most complicated and interesting thing on earth is a human being, right? So kind of dove deeply into human psychology and consciousness and all aspects of this. And the things you're talking about, psychedelics, there was a boom of that in the 60s and the 70s. But then again, you know, centralized organizations became very scared and really clamped on that. But I'm really excited to see that in the last decade, as a little side note, science has not been very successful in trying to produce drugs, tools to help humans with their mental health. And one of their only maybe things that was somewhat successful is uh, antidepressants, right? And they are very common, very popular, whatnot. And there was so much research on them in the last few decades. And even then, they have so many side effects and so many issues with them. So now, for the first time since the last few decades, there is more research happening about psychedelics than about uh, SSRIs and antidepressants because from everything that I've read, everything that I've seen, and uh, my own limited experimentation, this is currently the best tool that humanity has for supporting humans, for helping them you know, deal with all kinds of notes and mental health issues that we have. And there is a wide range of different tools from ayahuasca to mushrooms to GMT to DMA to all kinds of stuff. I got first exposure to that, first practical experience uh, quite late in my life when I was 42 or 43. And I was since then kind of explored that a fair bit. And it's been uh, quite beneficial because in a way, every human lives in their own universe, you know, based on their genetics and their bringing and then beliefs and whatnot. And they live in this very limited view or here's me, here's what happened to me, here's my trauma and whatnot. And, you know, psychedelics, I think that they're amazing tools used in the right context and in the right way with the right supporters around you that can help a human being build a much bigger and richer picture of who they are, what the world is, the interaction of themselves in the world, and that clarity that the human organism can acquire about itself and its place in the universe. I think that uh, it can have wonderful healing power for all of those internal conflicts and struggles that most of us humans have. Isn't that so true? Any resources that you found useful when you were exploring the world of psychedelics that you would recommend? Yes. Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, was quite awesome. There is another book that I recommended to quite a few people. I'm trying to think of the title. I'll send it to you later. Like I'll link it up, yeah. Yeah. There is a the whole number of podcasts, one of the good podcasts that I recommend to a bunch of people. It's called Adventures Through the Mind, ATT Mind, by James Jessa. And some very prominent and wonderful people like Tim Ferriss covered the topic quite a lot in his podcast. That's how I got exposed to it, yeah. So yeah, a number of starting points. And I'm really happy to see that there is much more acceptance and their mainstream medical uh, profession of that. And there are all kinds of wonderful initiatives, for example, MAPS initiatives, you know, training people who can support other humans going, you know, using those things, because these are very powerful tools. And, you know, they can help support the healing process. And for some people, they can also lead to 
extremely intense experiences and challenges and whatnot. So it's not something that you want to start playing with yourself just on the whim or just talk to a friend, you know. So it's really important to approach this very carefully, consciously, cautiously. And, you know, uh, but the good thing is like their availability of wonderful books and podcasts and discussions and research nowadays about this is uh, so much better than it was, let's say, 10 years ago. So I think it's an amazing and very impactful aspect of research and, and science that will help us deal with so many things of how much the human mind that evolved, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago is kind of mismatched with the current environment and, you know, that creates so many internal conflicts and issues. I love what you said about there's a growing acceptance now. And it almost connects back to something you said at the very, we talked about at the very start around propaganda. I do believe there's been a lot of people just think it's bad, but if they don't really know why, but they've been told it's bad for so many years and now there's growing. And that was my mindset. That's kind of why I touched, you know, so late in my life, because I grew up with like, this is bad, this destroys your brain. And then eventually when I read the books and I read the research, I'm like, oh my God, the very worst drug possible in terms of addiction, in terms of the negative effects is alcohol. And it's very popular and it's kind of part of our normal life, but it actually messes up so many people. And that's the, the worst drug you can imagine. And then, you know, things like mushrooms, so you ask LSD, they're actually quite benign. Dima, I want to be respectful of your time and we'll start to bring things to a close. I did want to touch on some things that are happening in the macro environment, though, and it's particularly what's happening in Europe and with Ukraine and the Soviet Union. I just love to know, I know this is deep to your heart. How do you feel when you're seeing what's going on over there at the moment? Well, it's a horrible tragedy. You know, when I looked at the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it was really hard for me to imagine that this could happen. And it's a horrible tragedy. And hundreds of thousands of people are dead there. So much suffering and destruction. So I really hope that we will be able as the world to support Ukraine in this and help bring this to an end as soon as possible and support them rebuilding this. And I think that there are so many lessons and so many things as a human society we can learn from this and looking kind of what unfolded in Russia over the last couple of decades, all the kind of propaganda and everything else, kind of the dictatorship that slowly but very strongly took hold of this huge country. And basically, Russia is run by a gang of, of thieves right now and gangsters, though, where every tragedy always brings with itself uh, so many seeds of learning and change. And I think that some of that change and learning can be very painful because we don't want to accept that. And we also want things to change right now. And they are changing, right? But for me, it's like, sometimes people say, oh, you know what? I don't want to hear about this. And this are like two extremes, if you will. One extreme and the one people constantly watch the news and those news trigger their own unresolved fears and conflicts. And then people end up and totally anxious and, and they try to escape them into alcohol or antidepressants and whatnot. And then people say, oh, I don't want to hear bad news about this and that. But you know what? Again, this is life. Life is full of that stuff. So I think that we can find a way when we open our heart to the emotions and, you know, 
we can feel their sadness, the despair, but also deep love and compassion for what is happening. And then we can contribute and sometimes in some small ways, just the words of encouragement to people going through that to Ukrainians, or maybe we can donate just a little bit like, you know, I'm on the board of directors of this organization. It's a US based nonprofit gate.org. Basically, they collect small donations, and something like 100 bucks can sustain a family in Ukraine for a month. So like, in some small ways, we can talk to people around us. We can understand what's happening. Maybe we can donate. Maybe we can just somehow support them with the, like you know, with our heart somehow else and talk to people around us to help understand what's happening. Yeah, I think that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, and I'd highly encourage everyone. I'll link up gate.org on the show notes as well. It's really an amazing thing that everything you donate goes directly to a family in Ukraine. And, and like you said, $100 can sustain one family. So, it, you know, something that's not a lot to you can really make a big impact. Dima, I know you follow it quite closely. Any thoughts on how it might stop or end up? I really don't see any other outcome, but I'm pretty sure that Ukraine will win because it's a really difficult situation for them, but the amount of support they're getting from uh, people around the world, from countries, from the U.S., from U.K. and many other places is overwhelming. And I know that in Russia, their dictatorship is still quite strong, but it's getting weaker. And really, when you look at the state of the Russian army, when you look at the state of the Russian economy, it seems strong, but actually it's very fake and empty. So there is no question for me that it will blow up. When exactly that will happen, how exactly it will unfold, I don't know. I've already seen how quickly Soviet Union fell apart, this giant that seems so strong and powerful, and then it crumbled within like a couple of years. And it was very painful. So there is a lot of pain still to unfold in that region, not just, you know, in that war with Ukraine, but, you know, within Russia itself and all the pieces that it still holds in the Russian empire. Generally, I'm an optimist, so I think that this is what we see in the end, maybe, of the last and biggest uh, empire. There will be all kinds of consequences uh, throughout the world for that, in terms of their energy, in terms of the economy, in terms of technologies and stuff like that. So it's happening. So the war, as horrible as it is, it also brought closer the end of their this current very tense situation that's been getting you know to the surface uh, for a long time in russia everyone in ukraine is in our thoughts last question just to bring things to a close and uh, i like to ask everybody on just shifting gears a little bit is looking forward a few years all right let's say it's three years from now and i know it's hard to think in the web3 space three weeks in the future let alone three years when we're thinking about, say, the future of the metaverse and Web3, where do you see the, the metaverse being in about three years? No idea, but I think that we really enter in the era of mass adoption. So I think that there are still lots of experiments that we have to do and lots of experiments that will blow up and go away and we will forget about them. For me, it's what is very clear that uh, blockchain technology is such the foundational technology will... Uh, become their platform for so many more things, you know, in our society, you know, technological aspects of how society operates, things like, you know, social media, for example, will be transitioned to that. I think it's inevitable that 
games will all be connected to blockchain and you know we will be working toward this transferability of objects between the different environments so i think that more and more of that unification connection uh, integration but also the technology will become less visible if you will to human beings like something that will be there in the background but we will not be paying that much attention like oh it's a blockchain it's this or that it's like oh yeah i'm just using this app that is doing the things that i want and when i'm using this app i know that you know things that i do here are private that they secure that nobody's going to steal and sell my private data and stuff like that things that we're struggling with i think that those technologies they will help us address that but also they will kind of uh, deem into the you know go away into the background we will not think about that but also this is something that we will require and we will get from technology that's a really exciting future dima you're a great mind and a deep thinker if anyone wanted to follow you i believe you're on twitter is there anywhere else people can follow you and follow what you're up to Twitter is good, and uh, anybody can go to my website at www.butterian.com, my last name.com. There are some links and um, links to my Twitter and some other places. Tima, it's going to be a great ride seeing how the merge unfolds. Thanks for talking us through it, as well as such a great conversation. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Howard. Awesome to talk to you. All right, that's it for this episode. Want to thank you for listening. If you want to get the links and the show notes, just head on over to our website, frontieroftheMetaverse.com. And if you like this episode, please do share it with anyone you know interested in all things Metaverse. And of course, you can subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Would be very much appreciated. All right, I'll see you in the next episode. 